So we're continuing along in this series, I Am a Church Member. Have you guys ever seen the skit, the, the magic coffee table? Any of us, other than that microphone chirping at you? Yeah, the magic coffee table skit. Is there something I'm doing here? Is it me? Is it you? Is it me? Okay. Well, it's a funny skit. Um, it begins with this exasperated woman telling her man that he is not doing his part around the house, and she is just exhausted. So in the middle of her rant, if you will, he interrupts her, and he says, Hey, hey, it'll be okay. She looks at him perplexed. How? And as if he is about to reveal a big secret, he says, here, I'll show you. He takes her over to the laundry basket and then begins to speak to her in wonder. Do you see this basket? I don't know how it happens, but I put dirty clothes in here. And the next day, overnight, they are cleaned and folded and put in a pile on my bed. She looks at him incredulously, and then he says, I, I couldn't believe it at first either, but then it just keeps happening. This is why I didn't tell you. I didn't want to jinx it. Well, the sketch goes on with this aloof guy showing her the coffee table, and he explains that it has the same types of magical properties. The final scene cuts to the guy explaining to the police, no, she would not have left me. She must have fallen onto the coffee table and disappeared. The female officer looks at him and says, are you insane? And of course, the male officer says, no, 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 no. I've got the same coffee table at home. <laughs> you know, it, it is a funny skit. I mean, you know, people, there's just some people that do not understand how chores work. In every relationship, there's the cleaner person, there's the messier person. We, we talk about some people being givers and other people being takers. And the givers get frustrated at the takers because they didn't realize that when they were entering into a relationship with this person that they were subscribing not to the work of one person, but two. Well, the same mentality can, of course, come into the local church. There are all kinds of magical things that happen at the local church. You know, magically, I take my kids downstairs and I drop them off and they disappear for an hour while I come up and worship. Or, or I, I, I walk into um, that multi-purpose room, right, and poof, somehow there are donuts and coffee all for my enjoyment, now, I didn't want to tell you guys about that. I was afraid that if I said anything, I would jinx it. Now, all joking aside, we know that the activities, the ministries, even the courtesies of the local church happen because members feel called to support the work of the church. When you hear the word support, I want you to think of the word give. And when I say the word give, I don't want you to think exclu uh, exclusively of financial giving, though that is involved in that idea. No, I want you to think of a, a disposition or an attitude where I am living sacrificially, 
where I am devoting myself to uh, other people and I'm putting them before myself, where I am pursuing something that is bigger than myself, beyond myself. I'm living in such a way where I'm saying that there is more to my world than the four-foot circle that surrounds me. I am willing to step into God's vast universe where he, not me, is the center. So let's consider some theological principles on giving and let's ask the question, what does meaningful support look like? Let's begin with the theological principles. The first principle that we see in the Bible is that God is a giving God. Uh, one of the clearest reminders of this is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So think about this. Every gift that you have, everything that comes your way, everything that you delight in or that just meets basic requirements for you did not magically appear, but came to you through a loving and giving God. He gives generously. He gives without conditions. He gives to the good. He gives to the evil. He gives to the grateful. He gives to the spoiled brat. Whatever things you have, did not manifest out of nowhere. They came to you from someone. Creation itself is a gift. Our perfect creator made this world that not only sustains our lives, but brings delight into our lives. I mean, think about this. God made the seas, he made the mountains, he made the rivers, he made some 750,000 insects, which I'm sure some of you are not thankful for. He made 400,000 species of flowers, 200,000 species of edible plants, 10,000 species of birds, innumerable stars. And not only did he create all these things, but he created us to have senses. We have sight, sound, feel. All of those things which would indicate, right, that God gave this to us so that we could experience, enjoy, relish in the gifts that he's given us. The amazing thing about God's attributes, God's characteristics, his nature, is that he does not change. He's not like a human being who might for one moment be good and generous in disposition and then the next start hoarding everything and keeping it unto themselves. God is generous. He will always be generous. Psalm 36, verses 5 through 8. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Remember last week we noted that if there's something intrinsic to God and we were created in God's image, then it means we were created to be like that. So the second principle is this, we were created to give. There's a Chinese proverb that goes like this, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. 
If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. For it is in giving that we receive, so said St. Francis of Assisi. The sole meaning of life is to serve humanity, said Leo Tolstoy, which I would just remove that humanity part and say the sole meaning of life is to serve. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give, said that old curmudgeon Winston Churchill. Making money is happiness. Making other people happy is super happiness. Nobel Peace Prize recipient Muhammad Yunus. You notice that common thread? Different people, different times in history, through the ages noticing that there is something intrinsically designed within us to want to be giving. That we don't experience genuine happiness, genuine um, peace in our life, genuine flourishing, unless we are giving of ourselves to other people, it might be because the creator of the universe made us in his image. In black, indeed, I, I believe it is. Leif Anderson, in his wonderful little book called The Volunteer Church, shared some amazing correlations. He noted some research from the London School of Economics and they found that there was a relationship between volunteering and the measure of happiness experienced in large groups of American adults. The more people volunteered, the happier they were. So compared with people who never volunteered, uh, the odds of being very happy rose 7% if you volunteered once per month. It rose from 7% to 12% if you volunteered twice per month, and you went from 12% to 16% if you volunteered four times per month. And interestingly enough, people with lower levels of income experience the same happiness index as people with higher levels of income if they were serving and giving of their time. So money doesn't make happiness, does it? Giving makes happiness. Friends, when we are encouraging you to engage in that plus one of Bible plus one, that act of service, it's only with your best interest in mind. I, I'm not interested in running some operation where I'm just putting people to work. I know the elders of the church aren't interested in that. We're doing things because God calls us to serve one another. Principle number three, God deserves our best. Indeed, when you think about giving to God, what does God desire? You can just say, God wants my best. He wants the best that you have to offer. Even if your best isn't that big. Why? Because your best demonstrates an attitude of gratitude. If God so, uh, has so richly given us everything, if he has dispensed lavishly his goodness upon us, then he certainly deserves our best. So what does our best involve? Well, our best, first off, involves your priorities. Your best involves your priorities. If we say God gets my best, then he cannot be number seven on the agenda. 
If God is number seven on the agenda, then he's not really on the agenda at all. We see this in Genesis chapter 4. It appears that one reason that Abel's offering was more pleasing to God than Cain's offering was because of the issue of priority. Abel brought of the first fruit, the firstborn of the flock. It was the best that he had to offer God while Cain gave God something that he had to offer. And the text tells us that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now we understand in relationships that priorities matter, right? I mean, you can imagine um, a husband-wife relationship. It's their anniversary. The husband comes home, and he says to his wife, I am so sorry. I've forgotten about our anniversary. And she just looks downcast, a little angry, a little upset mainly just hurt. And instead of saying, you know, I just got my priorities out of the whack, I'm so sorry, he says, but don't worry about it. When I was sitting out in the driveway, I ordered something off of Amazon, it'll be here in a couple of days. Has he fixed the problem? Nope, nope, he took a shovel and dug the hole a little deeper. God does not want to be your afterthought. If we come to him with our cold leftovers from the fridge, he says, thanks but no thanks. Not interested in that. The question that I have to ask myself when my priorities are out of whack is, is God worthy? Is God worthy? Is God worthy of the best of your time? Is God worthy of the best of your effort? Is God worthy of the best of your resources? Which leads to another thought. Your best involves your energy. You see, too often Christians give God some of their energy or the reserves of their energy or their misdirected use of time energy. But God's looking for the same thing that a a company's looking for, if not more. Uh, Proactivity, self-starting, self-initiating, high energy, certainly not perfect, certainly not foremost expert, but your effort and your creative energy? Yes, God's looking for that. Colossians 3.23 reminds us, whatever you do, work heartily. You know what? Heartily means enthusiastically, passionately. That alarm clock goes off at 6.30 in the morning and and you're jumping out of bed because what you are about to do is worthy. I know some of you are shaking your heads, but you can do it. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul equates the Christian life to an Olympic-level athletic competition. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. So the race is a marathon. It's not a Netflix binge. It's work intensive. It's not a light, leisurely activity. But also remember this, because you can hear something like this and you can get yourself all out of whack to believe that your energy is contingent on the results. Your energy is not contingent on the results. The Holy Spirit of God is. 
You know, when you try to apply your energy into God's work without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, good luck. You will burn out. It's like going on a cross-country trip without an alternator in your car. Your battery takes you down the road so far, but eventually it drains and you're a dead duck on the side of the road. We need the Holy Spirit of God empowering our energy. But he certainly doesn't want me sitting on the couch hoping that he will physically lift up my body and take me to do the things that he wants me to do. Your best involves your attitude. If you give begrudgingly because that is what I am supposed to do. If you give selfishly, I'm doing this because I get something from it. If you give hypocritically, I'm doing this for the sake of notoriety from others. That's a problem. Attitude matters. Remember Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. If you want to see more on that, go check out Exodus 35 and 36. Look at how the people of Israel gave to the work of the tabernacle. It says there that Moses actually had to tell them, stop, stop bringing stuff. We're getting overwhelmed. We have all that we need. That's the kind of attitude that God's looking for from his people. So let's recap. Here's the principles. God's a giver. He created you to give. He deserves your best. And now I am going to state this, that I believe that God has placed you within the local church, 824 Main Street, Osterville Baptist Church, in order for you to offer up your services to him by coming and giving him your worship, by ministering to one another, by gathering and then scattering to go into the world. So the real question we have to ask ourselves is, what does meaningful support look like? And I would talk, I I could say multiple things, but I only have time to really discuss three. One being financial giving. Two, serving or volunteering. Three, prayer. Now as you think through these things, just simply consider, why do individual members need to feel personally responsible to support their local church? Why do you, the individual member, need to feel personal responsibility? We unpack the theological principles, but just consider practically what happens. Remember that analogy of the living stones? We had the wall back here that was a temple, right? What happens when one of those living stones pulls its support? Well, the temple weakens, it falls, or other living stones have to do double duty. Think about the body analogy. What if a member of the body stops functioning, stops providing support? Once again, the body suffers, and that individual part that is not contributing suffers. So as we talk about these various forms of support, I don't want any elbow nudging to the person next to you. I don't want you thinking of someone that really could have benefited from this sermon. I want you to ask the question, am I doing my part? 
What if every single member of the local church said, I will support my church? Well, what does that look like? I will support my church through financial giving. It was the Barna Research Group in partnership with Thrivent Financial. They published this study called The Generosity Gap. Now, it's, it's quite uh, common, it's regularly occurring across America that people have more income than they've ever had and they're actually giving less than they've given. One of the reasons for this is in the Barna study, they discovered that people view volunteering as interchangeable with financial giving. So basically they say, if I volunteer, I really don't need to financially invest. The research, the study noted that only one in five Christians would disagree that if I gave of my time, then um, I don't have to give of my money which is a problem because the Bible never treats volunteering and giving as interchangeable. Indeed, God tells us that he wants us to worship him as a living sacrifice, which is all-encompassing, which involves both my serving and my giving. Think about this. If a large portion of the church's membership does not feel personally responsible to maintain the financial responsibilities of the church— then there is both a discipleship problem and a faith problem in the church, within the church. Why do I say that? Discipleship and faith. Well, let's think about discipleship. Discipleship involves my level of understanding and my level of buy-in. Understanding, buy-in. So it might be a discipleship problem because I'm just simply under, uninformed. I don't know what the Bible has to say about giving. And, and if you don't know what the Bible has to say, Harry Fletcher a couple of months ago preached on giving here at church, and it was great. It was fantastic. It was biblical. It was convictional. Go check that out. But also, on another level, discipleship has to do with our buy-in. Jesus' elevator speech, okay, his elevator speech, you know that two-minute speech you give when you're trying to sell your product and make sure everybody will buy onto it, latch onto it quickly, is this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a hard speech. That's a hard sell. He says right at the entry point, 100% is all I'll take. And here's the deal. If we're not giving, it might indicate we haven't hit the 100% mark. Maybe we're at 50. Maybe we're at 25. But Jesus says that's not good enough. That's not a life of discipleship. What about faith? A father asked a little boy if he could borrow $20 from him, and his little son, um, he had two boys. His younger son was going to go off and was going to go on a, an outing with a friend, and it would just require a little bit of cash in order for him to participate. The father didn't have any money with him, and he didn't want to send a seven-year-old off with a credit card. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to do that either. And so he goes to his son and his 10-year-old, and he's very money conscious. He keeps a close count of every penny that he owns. When the father came and asked for the money, the boy started acting Strangely, he suddenly didn't remember where his wallet was. He always knows where his wallet is. 
And then the father says, look, I'm under a time crunch. Can you please just go find your wallet so that I can borrow $20 from you? I promise you that I will pay you back. Well, suddenly the boy finds the wallet and he hands over the $20 and he says, here, take it. Nothing more. As the father walks out of the room and down the hallway, he starts hearing weeping coming from the room. So he walks back into the room and he says, what's going on, son? He said, this was my birthday money. The father felt a little offended and he said, son, don't you trust me? The son said, yeah, I I trust you, but I'm just not sure you're going to give me the money back. The father looked at the son with gentleness but firmness and he said, son, everything that you have, I provide for you. I give to you generously. I would give you anything over and above even if you didn't have enough, though we're not going to go to the store and get toys or anything like that right now. I care about you. I need you to trust me. Now, most of us from the outside looking in can say of that situation, we can see the problem that the boy is struggling with. The boy has a lack of faith in the father's ability to provide for him. There's a lack of trust for the father to pay him back. Might that not represent our struggle too? We think to ourselves, I can't afford to give to God for my money. I would never be able to make it if I did that, or I wouldn't be able to enjoy the lifestyle expectations that I've grown accustomed to if I did that. And so we hide our wallets, or if we do give, we give with trembling hands. I love God's promise to his people Israel and Malachi. He essentially tells them, put me to the test, Malachi 3.10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple if you do, says the Lord of heaven's army. Isn't that powerful? Heaven's army. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, avoid the danger of hearing a passage like that and saying, well, God is this divine money exchange. $10 in the offering plate, $100 in my bank account. Okay, this is Old Testament Israel. God had a covenant with them through the Mosaic Covenant. He's not going to give us all kinds of money if we give to him. But the principle, right? The principle still remains intact. That God is generous. God is infinitely rich. If we give to God, we will never be harmed for doing it. 1 Timothy 6.17, this is a message that Paul is giving to the rich. He tells the rich, Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, in the New Testament, the rich would have been the socioeconomic opportunities that we all experience. Okay, we're the rich. When you think about the global economic disparity between the average American and someone living in a third world country, I'm the rich. 
Don't put my hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, that's the confidence that the father wanted to instill into his son. That's the confidence God wishes to instill in your heart if you will take him at his word. Secondly, I will support my church by serving or volunteering. When you think about serving, if you've been in church for some time, your mind almost immediately goes to those spiritual gifts. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And when you think about those spiritual gifts, you know that the Holy Spirit of God, when you trusted Jesus Christ, took up residence in your heart. He gave every believer in this room at least one spiritual gift, if not more, so that he could uniquely empower us to build up the church. But we... Think about those spiritual gifts, I'm going to argue this morning, and tend to forget that Jesus just made a statement to encourage us just to simply serve one another. Just serve. I can serve my fellow church member through using my spiritual gift, and I should. But I'm hoping also to argue this morning that I should be serving my fellow church member just through doing menial work. The work that offers less glamour, less thanks, and is just plain not fun sometimes to do. You see the difference? There's some work in the church that's just hard and it doesn't involve a spiritual gift. Like down in the nursery, there is no spiritual gift for the ability to change a poopy diaper. That did not come from the Holy Spirit. That's just something that someone who has a humble disposition, who cares about another person and wants to give them the opportunity, a young family, to sit and receive the Word of God, does. There's not a spiritual gift for cleaning toilets. There's not a spiritual gift for stacking chairs. It just takes people to say, I can do that. Uh, I'm going to look at a piece of trash on the floor. I'm going to pick it up because I'm going to serve my fellow members. Well, how do I know that everybody should be doing this, that no one's too good to do menial acts of service in the church? Well, let's think about John chapter 13 for a minute. Do you remember that story where Jesus ties the towel around his waist and he stoops down like a servant and washes the feet of his disciples? wasn't because that was Jesus' spiritual gift. No, Jesus lowered himself like that because he needed to set a humble expectation for his church. He intended to form a church where millionaires would just as gladly serve as members who have lived with cyclical poverty. Where strong leaders would never be in positions of power and leadership for gain, but only to set a loving model of shepherding for the people of the church. This is why Jesus said, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So what am I getting at here? What's my purpose of saying all this? Serve in the nursery. When, when there's an ask for children's ministry help, serve. If there's cleaning opportunities, serve. Lower yourself a little bit. Become the magic 
coffee table for someone else. You know, I, I came in on a Saturday. It was 5 p.m., and my mind was blown. The donuts don't come from a magic coffee table. Christy Curtis was here at 5 p.m. on a Saturday, humbly organizing, setting things up, preparing things so that we could walk in on a Sunday morning and experience good things, courtesies. That community exegesis came to mind again. I better understood what Jesus meant when he said, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What about the beautiful decor that we experience every Sunday? Those magic coffee tables, Jamin Eldridge and Amanda Kleppel. There are many others that I could acknowledge and I could encourage. Uh, Time does not permit me to talk about how excellent our deacon fellowship is. You want to talk about proactive, self-starting, self-initiating, high-energy creative leaders. That is the deacon fellowship. They are enthusiastically pursuing the care needs of the church. However, I only have so much time, so I could only stick with, once again, Katie's favorite people. The big question in life at Osterville Baptist Church that you need to ask yourself is what have I done for Katie lately? All right, let's move on. Number three. I will support my church by praying regularly. You guys hanging with me? All right, we're going to land this plane. Don't worry. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rader noted that one of the main factors that causes churches across America to close is prayer. You hear that? Churches close due to lack of prayer. Prayer cannot be an add-on to the life and ministry of the church. It not, must be the lifeblood of the church. Acts 2.42, there were four things that the early church devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread together, which I would suggest is communion, and fourthly, prayer. The word devoted carries the idea of intensity and deliberation. It's like a a wild, hungry beast that's ready to just devour another animal. When the first church gathered, they weren't just simply coming together and talking for 40 minutes and spending 10 minutes in prayer. They were coming together with a fervent passionate attitude that said, unless we pray, God's not going to do this. We see that in Acts 4.31, that God responded to those prayers in powerful ways. When they had prayed, they, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. James 5.16 reminds us, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So if the church lacks prayer or power, it's because we lack in prayer. One great article that I will post later, if you're friends with me on Facebook, friend me. I'm a nice guy. I'm not that smelly. But this article says this of prayer, and I'm going to post it on Facebook. Faith is the engine of prayer. God's promises are the fuel 
and discipline is the rails. Do you want to see God work? Pray. Motivate others to pray. Get those cards out every day. Pray 365. God, protect your church. Encourage her. Strengthen her. Unite her. Build her up. Cause her to grow. Empower her for ministry. Tom Rayner says that the big question he always asks of the dying church members is, did you guys pray together? There was a day, uh, said one member who responded to this question, when prayer was powerful in our church, people would pray before the worship services. Small groups spent a lot of time praying. We prayed intensely for the community. Then he stopped, and it was like a light went on in his head. Then our community started changing. We were afraid. Many members sold their homes. We started focusing on the fear. We stopped serving the community. And tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, and we stopped praying with the passion that we once had. That's it. That was the beginning of the decline of our death. We stopped taking prayer seriously and the church started dying. Rainer says, no prayer, no hope, and the church starts dying. Friends, there are no magic coffee tables at Osterville Baptist Church. It's just a gathering of a group of faithful, committed believers who believe that God has gathered us, united us around sound doctrine and a big vision. What's a small vision? A small vision is what can the church do for me? How can the church meet my needs? If that is your vision of the church, you will be here for one to two years. One to two. Something will happen at some point that will not meet an expectation you have you will go down the road to another church. You will be there for one to two years. They will not meet an expectation you have. Then you'll go to another church. Have a bigger vision. A big vision says, how can I be a part of something bigger than myself? How can I meaningfully contribute to the mission? What is our big vision? It's simple, three words. Say it with me. Worship, transformation, mission. Worship because God is ultimate and we are not. We want to believe in a God-sized God. Not a small God that we make and create ourselves. We know that unless God is central, we never get to be the people that he ultimately, fundamentally created us to be. Transformation, because the Spirit of God is in the process of changing us to look more like Jesus and the Spirit works through the community to accomplish that goal. Mission. Because there is a world that needs to hear about Jesus. And we are like beggars who have found bread, going to other beggars saying, here's the bread of life. That's our goal, that's our job. We'll talk about that more next week. Can you see yourself within that vision? Can you see yourself in that? Can you get behind it? If you can, then you need to support it with your time with your energy, with your best. And if you're willing to do that, I'd like it if you read this statement with me. I am a church member. I worship a giving God who made me to be giving. I will take responsibility for my church by giving generously to the work, by serving my fellow members, 
by expectantly praying for God to work, I will support my church. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to see more about who you are, that you are a giving God. Would you help us as a church to be like you, to be givers and not takers, to support the work of the ministry, to put our energy and our effort and our best into the tasks that you have given us, not relying on ourselves, but only trusting that the Spirit of God will empower us to do this. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.